Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 23rd of June. This is The Briefing. I'm Tom Tilley, joined by Annika Smethurst, fresh off the Q&A set last night. How are you feeling? I've had three and a half hours sleep, Tom, so a little <laughs> bit tired. <laughs> wow. I actually thought, you know, watching that as a, as a viewer at home, that after having your AFP investigation dropped last month, that this was finally a time for you to speak in public and relax and just open up. And then the first question they put to you was this. My question is for Annika Smithhurst. Do you believe that you are above the law? And do you believe if you have committed a breach of that law that you are unable to be investigated for that breach simply because you are a journalist? Oh, how did that feel? Former cop there. Yeah. <laughs> Look, no, I think that's a fair question. And I like people to ask these questions. If we want press freedom, I think there's a lot of people sitting around thinking... How's this going to work? A journo's going to get away with everything, and that's not the case. So happy to take those questions. All right. In a moment, we're going to hear how you answered that question. And also on the show, we're going to interview Julie Bishop, uh, the former foreign minister, on the idea of a WA-style Brexit. If you think Brexit's been acrimonious, could you imagine Waxit? That interview with Julie Bishop in just a moment. First, let's get into the big news of the day. The High Court of Australia has apologised to six women after an independent inquiry found they were sexually harassed by one of Australia's best-known former judges. Yeah, former Justice Dyson Hayden, who was a High Court judge for 10 years until 2013, became the subject of the inquiry last March after six women came forward alleging misconduct. High Court Chief Justice Susan Kiefel put out a statement last night and she said, the findings are of extreme concern to me, my fellow justices, our chief executive and the staff of the court. Dyson Hayden has also put out a statement. He categorically denies the allegations against him uh, with a statement from his lawyers stating that if any conduct of his has caused offence, It was inadvertent and unintended. Have you started forgetting about the risk of COVID-19? Well, new research shows that you're not alone. Somewhere around three quarters of the population are starting to no longer um, realise that they they need to to be aware of the risks. And and that's a cause for concern. So that's Professor James McCaw from the University of Melbourne explaining research they've done with the government that shows 75% of us are in some way ignoring the rules. Yeah, Tom, it does seem that people are changing the behaviour in the last few weeks and there's not that social distancing that we saw a few months ago. Every population gets fatigued. They do consider that they're not at risk and they also get a bit tired of complying according to social distancing. That's Mary Louise McLaws speaking on Four Corners on the ABC last night. Yeah, and Tom, this comes as we deal with yet another rise in cases in Victoria, with one epidemiologist now suggesting the state might need a hard eight-week lockdown to stop the second wave. Wow, that's a scary thought. Um, The Deputy Premier of New South Wales, I noticed yesterday, was out there suggesting that maybe we need to close the border between New South Wales and Victoria, particularly with school holidays coming up. Yeah, I asked the ministers about this on the weekend. They reckon it's pretty hard to do with towns like Albury-Wodonga, Echuca-Moama, a lot of those border towns. So I'm not sure that they'll get to that level. But there's definitely a warning, you know, from the Premier not to go to Victoria unless you have to. And they've even outlined some councils in Victoria saying not to leave them. Do you find it interesting that a lot of the criticism towards Daniel Andrews was that he was actually going too hard on the lockdown and now we've ended up with this situation? Yeah, he almost uh, seems to be proven correct as why they were locking down so hard. But look, there is a bit of concern about that complacency. I know a lot of people in the federal government, both health officials and also ministers, are saying that 
really after that wave of protests, even though this didn't spread there, there was a complacency that people thought, well, there's mm. a double standard. If yep. there's people out there in the street, why can't I have a house party? And, and there's no coincidence that this has happened two weeks after. As you point out, Annika, what's happening in Victoria is obviously a massive concern, but the situation globally is even more scary. It seems that almost every day we reach a new and grim record. Yesterday, more than 183,000 new cases of COVID were reported to WHO, easily the most in a single day so far. So that's the head of the World Health Organization, Tedros Ghebreyes, who also revealed that we've clocked up more than one million cases in just eight days. The other concerning point from that speech was the World Health Organization saying it could be at least two and a half years until there's a vaccine widely available, which might mean not going overseas for two and a half years. Yeah, and the point there was even if they find a vaccine by the end of this year, uh, it could take another year to actually develop it and distribute it so that we can all access it. And a surprising prediction from one of our top universities uh, after those fee changes announced by the federal government, the Vice-Chancellor of the University of New South Wales believes we might actually see a heap more arts, humanities and law students, even though the prices of those degrees have gone up. Unis are saying they may be left with a massive funding shortfall from the changes, so they may push to take on more high-fee-paying students. So that's after the cost of degrees like arts doubled to $14,500 a year, while courses like nursing and maths have been halved to $3,700 a year. So what the Vice-Chancellor of New South Wales Uni is saying there is that they will be left with a $5,000 shortfall per student in some of the subjects, which then in total could run into the tens of millions for his university. So this is something we're actually going to take a deeper dive on tomorrow on the briefing. Uh, We're going to speak to the Education Minister, Dan Tien, about that. All right, and at the start of the show, I I said we'd get to the the answer that Annika gave to that stinging, burning first question on Q&A last night. Are you ready to hear your answer back? Yes. (laughs) Do I think I'm above the law, John? Well, the police came to my house with a warrant that was illegal and trespassed, so do they think they're above the law would be the first (laughs) thing there. I understand the reason for secrecy in certain things. I'm not this sort of person that just thinks publish, you know, we're entitled to know everything that happens out there. But back to the law, the law is 100 years old and it does say that you can't give information. If you, This relates to anything. It could be the amount of paper clips kept at ASIO. If that information is sent to me, uh, that then puts me at fault. Uh, it's, it's actually, as soon as it lands in my inbox or anywhere... De- Dennis Richardson's shaking his head and saying rubbish. One more what, point what? I want to make about the being above the law. There are a lot of professions that actually have carve-outs, whether that's doctors um, and patient confidentiality. Let's not forget politicians have a privilege that makes them above the law. It's not about being above the law. It's that the laws don't work to allow journalists to do the job that they want to do. It was a fascinating in-depth debate. Yeah, it was really enjoyable, actually. I think I like the way q and is going with really getting into some really serious issues. Focusing it's, on one issue yeah, at a time sometimes. Yeah, secrecy is something that's really been, I guess, a problem. There's a lot of secret trials going on in Australia and my case, the ABC's case. So it seemed really timely to do that. And um, I know that Dennis Richardson said that he was um, happy to play devil's advocate on there. It's good to have some opposing voices. So Yeah, so he's the former Secretary of the Department of Defence and he had some really interesting insights because his job has been sort of the opposite of yours. He's been trying to manage this kind of information that was leaked to you for your story about the Australian Signals Directorate. 
I think if there was anything to any consensus we all had last night, it's about a balance, right? Mm. Uh, as I said there, I don't think that every bit of information should just be put online. You can't put spies at risk, and I understand that. But we live in a democracy. We we pay these people, politicians, <laughs> to represent us. Uh, they do it in our name, and they do it with money we give them. So we're entitled to know a lot more than we're being told. I think. Did you hear anything that? Open things up for you last night. Dennis Richardson was also um, the director general of ASIO for a time. So some of his insights were pretty amazing. You don't often hear from these people. I think that's one of the key problems too, because we don't hear from them. Uh, there is this sort of shroud of secrecy and like they act in the shadows. I think it can be only enhanced and improved if we know what happens and if they come out of the shadows and start talking to us as much as they can about what's going on there. Because if they don't, we fill that void with not knowing what's happening and we start to develop conspiracy theories or concerns about what might be going on. Look, I still think the balance is wrong. I think we shouldn't be having secret trials in Australia. I don't think we should be raiding journalists' homes and I don't think the laws are fit for purpose for the media in this country and I think that's a debate we need to have. Yeah, well, it was a fascinating debate last night. Um, well done on being part of that rigorous highly detailed debate. In a moment, we're going to discuss the idea of Wax It with Jan Fran, including an interview with Julie Bishop. What we have done in less than a week took Britain four years to work through. Brexit has taken four years and we put borders in place in the space of one week. That is the West Australian Premier, Mark McGowan. He reckons he can do it better than Britain. So we are asking the question, should WA have its own Brexit or wax it? (laughs) Wax it, as it's known, uh, essentially become their own country to secede or to separate from the rest of Australia and call the country Westralia. Yeah, this secessionist sentiment has been simmering in WA for a century but it's now being whipped up again by the tough talk on borders in the wake of COVID-19. WA's borders have now effectively been sealed shut. Nearly everyone from east of our border is forbidden. These strict new border controls will apply to all access points, roads, rail, air and sea. I mean, New South Wales had the Ruby Princess. I mean, seriously? And they're trying to give us advice on our borders? The only uh, state or territory that is unlikely to fall out of that is still possibly Western Australia. In effect, we'll be turning Western Australia into an island within an island, our own country. Some strong words there on keeping the WA border closed. And I guess given the recent surge of cases in Victoria, those words are sounding pretty sensible. Yeah, perhaps a little less sensible, I think, would be to take a massive step further and to actually break away from Australia and form its own country. Now, this is something that has been, as we said, simmering in WA for a long time. In 1933, actually, they had a referendum where they did vote to leave the Federation, but the UK said no. And earlier this month, a group called Friends of Westralia stormed a country courthouse and essentially tried to start a new country. Normally the argument comes down to money and resources, that basically WA feel like they're giving more in taxes than they get back. Now in a moment we're going to find out what Julie Bishop makes of the Waxit debate. She's one of WA's most influential people. She was a foreign minister up until two years ago. And she absolutely loves WA. But before we get to Julie, we're going to go to another Julie, the leader of the Western Australian Party. Uh, This Julie is Julie Matheson. Uh, now, Julie, thanks so much for joining us. Do you want to secede from the Federation? Look, I um, don't support a waxit, but I do follow the secession narrative really closely. 
And the reason why is because Western Australians pay way too much tax and royalties to the federal government than any other state. But if the GST is your main argument, isn't that argument a lot weaker now? Because the 30 cents in the dollar was in 2015. Um, They're now working towards rectifying that, where within a few years you'll get 70 cents or even 80 cents in the dollar back. We would prefer to have 100% of our GST revenue. So we represent 11% of the population. And Western Australians pay more tax per capita than any other state. Uh, This is a population imbalance between the East and the West. And uh, the population imbalance is, is something we don't want fixed because Western Australia doesn't need to sell coffee and property to each other to make money. You know, we have a, an abundance of resources to support a comfortable lifestyle in Western Australia. So unnecessary population growth ruins our way of life. So when you say that you've been following the secession narrative but don't necessarily want to secede, what does that actually mean? What would you like to see changed in favour of West Australia then? Well, we would like to receive 11% share of the taxes that are raised by the federal government. We'd also like to see some taxes abolished in Western Australia, particularly the fringe benefits tax. So fringe benefits tax in Western Australia is really harmful to our small businesses and regional towns. It makes them uncompetitive. If they want to invite families to come and live in regional towns and provide them with a house and a car and water and electricity, they are taxed at 47 cents in the dollar, which makes it really difficult for small business to compete. There's also the uh, excise fuel tax. So Western Australia pays a lot in excise fuel tax because we are naturally the biggest state with a lot of roads and a lot of fuel gets used so that we can export our uh, product overseas. But we don't see very much of that excise fuel tax coming back to Western Australia. And we don't see the federal government wanting to put the infrastructure in Western Australia so that our remote regional places and communities can function as businesses If our Aboriginal people are wanting to make a business in their remote areas where they live, they just don't have the services. Cities are paying, you know, maybe $1.22 for diesel. Our regional towns are paying $2 a litre. Right. And that includes excise fuel tax. So it's just really uncompetitive. Julie, broadly speaking on the tax question, a huge chunk of your economy, around a third, is driven by the mining sector. Uh, and that's mining resources, Australian resources, not necessarily just Western Australian resources. So given so much of your industry is driven by what comes out of the the ground, isn't it reasonable that you pay it a a greater proportion of tax? Not necessarily. I mean, if it wasn't for our industries, there wouldn't be the cushy jobs in the services sector that the eastern states have. You know, our workers in in the regional towns, especially in the Pilbara, do it really hard. It's very tough working these 12-hour shifts. We should not be paying more than our fair share of the taxes. Do you think that part of the sort of simmering sentiment around secession comes from just being sick of the East Coast telling you guys what to do? 
Certainly there is some of that and there is a narrative around the wise men from the East telling the West what to do. Mm. So there is that. And that narrative has happened and uh, since the 1930s when mm. the secession movement started. And do you think that's been exacerbated to some extent by, you know, COVID-19 and the borders closing and each state sort of having to do it on its own? And WA doing really well. Yeah. Well, we've always had border closure. We have border security. We don't allow fruit and and flowers and and that sort of thing into Western Australia. If you're a traveller to Western Australia, you're not allowed to bring in food, fruit, flowers, etc. Because we want to protect our natural, pristine environment. That was Julie Matheson, leader of the Western Australia Party. Um, Is it going to be a a country of Julies if they go ahead? Because... Our next WA guest is Julie Bishop, the former foreign minister. Julie Bishop, thank you for joining us. Do you support Waxit? Well, I suspect it wouldn't be that difficult to conduct a populist campaign at present in favour of WA secession. Uh, There's always a view over here that um, other states benefit unfairly from our economy and resources and WA doesn't receive its per capita share of national grants and funding. Um, But I think that we've always had what I call attitudinal secession. Um, We're very individualistic over here, uh, but I think that Western Australians who do complain about not being fairly treated by the other states should just strive to negotiate fairer arrangements with the federal government in terms of Western Australia's share of the revenues generated in this state. I tell you, it would be too hard and too complex to even think of seceding. Do you think that uh, the COVID-19 outbreak has sort of exacerbated that sort of secession vibe in WA, given especially the outbreak in Victoria that we've just seen, um, the border closures? Are rumblings just a little bit heightened now because of the pandemic, do you reckon? There was a poll of about a 1,000 people taken the other day and the result was that 90% of people surveyed were in favour of retaining the hard borders. Now, I fear that they meant forever. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I don't think they just meant for the uh, purposes of seeing out the coronavirus. But, yeah, the fact that here in Western Australia we have had these hard borders in place for so long now and we're having to be fairly self-sufficient has brought a lot of this discussion to the fore. We saw a video you did for Channel 7 and and it seemed that you were sort of almost playing it both ways. You were sort of um, being very understanding of the Western Australians who want to secede and sort of talking up why they would want to do that, given it's such a great place. You said it's the best place to live in the world. Big call. And we know, <laughs> you've, call. We know you grew up in the Adelaide Hills, so you, you do have yes. some experience. Be very careful there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's got to be diplomatic. But um, it is a very entrepreneurial state and it is different. The fact that we are so far from um, the East Coast, but also we're, I think, the most isolated capital city in the world, does bring around uh, about a really independent spirit. And I can understand why people get annoyed because the East Coast seems to forget that we're here. Now, I've been in federal parliament. I have seen it at the highest levels where people talk Sydney, Melbourne, Canberra. The rest of us seem to be on the outskirts. But I tell you, I couldn't think of a better place to live. And I have to say, over the last few months, spending all this time in Western Australia, particularly in Perth, because 
for a while, we haven't even been allowed to travel around the state. I've fallen in love with this beautiful city all over again. So I understand. But let's face it. I mean, start thinking of some of the issues. How would you do it? The Australian Constitution doesn't allow secession. So you'd have to amend the Constitution. Well, that'll never work. There's no way the East Coast had let us go. Mm -hmm. So we'd have to rely on the right to self-determination um, under international law. Well, that that is a very, very complex process. And then are we going to be a constitutional monarchy with a governor general or are we going to become a fully independent republic with a president? Can you imagine the arguments that would go on and on? And then we'd have to decide whether we wanted to retain duty-free trade with the rest of Australia, the free movement of people with the rest mm. of Australia. So if you think Brexit's been acrimonious, could you imagine wax it? <laughs> wow, yeah, when you when you spell out all the practical implications, it sounds very, very messy. So I guess while you, I, I see that you do talk up the, the idea of an understanding, you, you clearly have a position that it would be an absolute nightmare to do it. But, you know, just think of the cost. I mean, this is the other thing. Would the cost of building the infrastructure structure for an independent Western Australia outweigh what we actually receive back in revenues. And when you think you'd have to establish a defence force, a mm. customs service, immigration, uh, you know, it goes on and on. The test is, would Western Australia be better off overall? And my answer is no, it wouldn't. Right. So my mind's only going to the secession party, the Republic of West Australia party that will happen if and when secession does come about. Well, you won't be invited. Well, no, exactly. <laughs> I've just realised I won't be invited. And actually, there's a whole there's a whole lot of other considerations that come into play that I haven't thought about too deeply. Yeah, well, the passport office. Think about the power <laughs> yeah. of the passport office deciding who or who is not a citizen of Western Australia. I mean, it's, uh, it's oh, we'd have to have a new flag. We'd have to have a national anthem. Yep. That was Julie Bishop. Bishop, sounding quite sensible about the whole Waxit idea. Yeah, and sounding quite relaxed since leaving politics, I'd say. All right, that is it for today's episode. Thank you so much for joining us on The Briefing. Look forward to speaking to you tomorrow. Catch you soon. A Podcast One production.